Well, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. I have a friend who, who doesn't celebrate Christmas or Easter or any other Christian holiday because they're, they've discovered that their origins are tied to pagan holidays. And maybe you know people like that, maybe you have been like that or currently are like that. <laughs> um, I think, I think they begin with a well-intentioned desire to remain faithful to the truth. Um, and then they find out that there's a link between Christmas and the Roman festival of Saturnalia, the worship of Saturn. And so they decide they cannot engage in a pagan practice. Um, it is true that the Romans celebrated Saturnalia for a week beginning on December 17th, ending roughly near the time of, that we celebrate Christmas. However, the Christian celebration of Christmas was not a form of engaging in a pagan holiday, but an antidote to the practice or to the idolatry of the pagans. And so I think there's, there's good reason to recover the true meaning of Christmas in our generation as well. We have to guard against the cultural and commercial corruptions that distract us from worshiping Christ. And refusing to celebrate Christmas and Easter doesn't make you more likely to meditate upon Christ's birth and resurrection more frequently. It's a rather an attempt to remain faithful to Christ. Oftentimes, what happens is refraining from participation in these Christian holidays really only hinders a proper humility and a sacrificial love for Him. And so I have no hesitation in commending a, a hearty celebration of Christ's birth during this month. Uh, two weeks ago, we considered how the hopes and fears of all the years were represented by Christ's genealogy. And his ancestors, they, they waited with eager expectations for the day of his arrival. But even his miraculous conception began with the devastation, the fears of Joseph believing that his betrothed had been unfaithful. It wasn't until the visiting angel restored Joseph's hope that he confidently obeyed the command to take Mary as his wife and to name the child Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. And so it's good that we reflect upon these themes. You cannot reflect upon them too much. So having a time set aside each year to do that is, is healthy. So this morning we transition, though, to the theme of worshiping Jesus. Matthew sets up a contrast here uh, between true and false worship and between corrupt leadership and humble service. He wants us to see these contrasts of light and darkness, and it's surprising in the way that he presents the themes. So before we read the passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you that Matthew and Luke complement one another so well in the way they portray this narrative uh, of Christ's birth. We learn things here that are unique uh, 
to Matthew. And in Luke, we learn things there that are unique to Luke's story. And yet they both tell the same fundamental story of the birth of the Messiah, the miraculous birth, the virgin birth of our Savior, the one who was born to come and take away our sins. Lord, we want to honor him as king. We want to bow before him, even in our hearts now as we sit under the preaching of your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth. Soften our hearts to respond in obedience, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. And Lord, that this, as much as any other aspect of this worship service, would truly be worshiping. As we listen, that we would actively listen, that we would guard against distractions, and that your spirit might arrest our hearts and fill us with joy. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Let's read with me Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem. In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, this passage opens with wise men from the east seeking to worship Jesus. And so if you're following along in the outline there, that's your first blank, seeking to worship Jesus. We find this in verses 1 and 2. So after the birth of Jesus, wise men from the east traveled to Jerusalem in order to worship this child. They asked people where Jesus was born, mentioning the star they saw in the sky, and then their intention to worship him. We're not told how long they had been traveling, but contextual evidence points to this happening at least one year after Jesus was born. Uh, They didn't find him until nearly two years later, 
we can assume uh, in verse 16 of chapter 2, look down there. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So he probably was overcompensating for, for the time, kind of making, uh, you know, rounding up, giving himself two, all children two years and, and under. And I'm sure he also assumed that the um, soldiers who were going through slaughtering these children were not asking for identification to verify age. They were simply guessing based upon their height. So, he's, so, so we, we can assume it is somewhere around two years after Jesus' birth, probably before then, but, but still, this is a, a lengthy time. What this means is that our beautiful picturesque scenes of the nativity set that we, we place out during this time, they're wrong. It, the, the, the wise men were not present at the, at the night of Jesus' birth. They were not there for at least a year, we can safely say. So the wise men ultimately find Mary uh, and Jesus in a house, according to verse 11, not in a stable. And so even if you thought, well, maybe, maybe they were there earlier, um, it was, it, they were already out of the stable. Um, and we know that the family remained there and had the child uh, dedicated, presented in the temple, which would have occurred 40 days after his birth. And it seems like they, stuck, they stayed there longer for, for whatever reason we don't know. Uh, we don't know how they were provided for. We, don't know, we know that they were poor because they did offer a pair of turtle doves at his dedication. So they didn't have money. They were probably living off the generosity of others. Um, and, and certainly the gifts of these uh, wise men would have substantially helped their financial outlook moving forward. It might have been the thing that provided for them to flee to Egypt, which we'll look at next week. But on the night Jesus was born, these wise men, it says, saw a star. And this may be an allusion to the messianic star that's referred to in Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. Uh, but it's unclear if the wise men understood this. Um, the, some have tried to explain the movement of the star as a natural phenomenon, even saying maybe it was Halley's Comet um, or a supernova. But verse 9 seems to, to indicate that this was a supernatural uh, object that God had placed there specifically for this occasion. The star that, had been, that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Uh, stars just don't do that in their natural course. This was specifically, um, you know, uh, something that God had established. So, so we know very little, though, about these wise men. If you follow the, the songs or the Christmas traditions, you may think that there's three of them. You may think that they were kings. Neither of those come from the passage. Uh, the, the word is magoi in the Greek, and the Magoi were religious scholars who adopted a variety of practices. Um, it was sort of just a, a, a kitchen sink category of religious scholarship, right? I mean, if you interpreted dreams, you were a Magi, right? A, a Magoi is just the plural form of Magi. 
So if, if you were, or magi, if you were a, um, uh, if you practiced the magic arts, you would have been considered magi. Uh, if you were an astrologist as well. So it seems that these particular wise men were particularly interested in the stars. Right? They were tracing the stars, they noticed the star, and they were following, following that star. Uh, there's no indication that they were kings, but based upon some cross-references with Psalm 72, some have associated uh, these, these wise men with kings because it does speak of the Messiah receiving gifts from Gentile kings. And that could be metaphor. Um, it's, it's not indicated from the narrative here. But the gifts that they did offer Jesus were expensive gifts that were clearly fit for a king. They were at least honoring him as king. And so we might assume that these men were wealthy, or at least they had access to some great resources. And since they brought three types of gifts, many have assumed that there were three magoi. But that's only speculation. So we don't even know where they came from. And it just says from the east. Uh, some songs say that's the Orient, so Asia. Maybe they came all the way from Asia. That, the time frame might, might make sense for that. Um, many have suggested Persia. But it does seem more likely that they were from the region of Babylon or Mesopotamia, the ancient region of Babylon, which at this time would have been Mesopotamia. Um, it was uh, at least a several-month several journey uh, for them to make. Uh, Ezra takes four months um, when they return to Jerusalem. So it's, it's, it's possible, that, but that would have been a, a large crowd and elderly and, and young children, so would have taken longer than these uh, wise men, presumably. But still, it was a lengthy journey. Uh, the Greek Old Testament, though, uses the term magoi in one book. It's found in Daniel. It's a reference to the religious practitioners of Babylonian magic. And in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar sought their help to interpret his dream. And Jewish influence in Babylon was, was strong enough through Daniel and his friends that we can safely uh, assume that they had an impact upon the, the Magoi that were there. Right? They, they would have influenced the way that they went about their practice. And so it's, it's very possible that they had some knowledge of the Old Testament prophecies. They were, had some interest in the, the coming of the Messiah. Combining this with the, their practice of astrology stoked this interest in finding and worshiping this child. And although Matthew certainly knew of the Old Testament condemnations of astrology in Isaiah 47, 13, and of pagan religion, he, he portrays the wise men in shockingly positive terms. Uh, there really isn't anywhere else in Scripture where you find that. And so while the vast majority of wise men would have fallen under condemnation, these select few were shown God's wondrous grace. And just as we're surprised to find certain names in the genealogy, um, notorious sinners in the genealogy of Christ, we are amazed by the grace of God that was shown to these unlikely characters. 
through their own superstitious practice, God draws them to worship Jesus, the true king. And all the recipients of gospel grace are unusual in that way, aren't we? It's, it's far more common for people to know what the Bible says and do nothing about it. Jesus traveled from heaven to earth in order to save his people from their sins, and too many people find it difficult to travel across town to worship him. And maybe they have had their interest in God peaked through various experiences, but they're short-lived, and the pressures of life snuff out any initial sparks. Instead of igniting a, a fire for the Lord, the result is nothing more than a puff of smoke, a vapor that vanishes. But those who have had their desires transformed by the grace of God, long to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Their interest in God's Word informs their pursuit of Christ. And so when the circumstances of their lives become challenging, they crave all the more the stability that Christ offers. And so true worship is a mark of faith. The determination of these wise men to worship Jesus underscores our own privilege and responsibility to do the same. We have a tremendous privilege to worship Jesus every Sunday. We do not have to travel to a sacred site in a distant land in order to have a holier experience. Now, the pilgrimage for most of us requires no more than a few hours each week. And worship is also a responsibility that we have as creatures created in the image of God. And so we should take that responsibility seriously. All right, we should prepare our hearts ahead of time. We should look forward to Sunday mornings with anticipation. And we could add to that the times that we gather together as a family, the times that we open God's Word privately. All of those are opportunities for God to, to speak to do a work in our hearts, and we should anticipate hearing from Him, meeting with Him in a special way. Well, as these wise men were genuinely seeking to worship Jesus, Herod begins scheming how he can eliminate Jesus. That's what you find in the next section here, scheming to eliminate Jesus in verses 3 through 8. When word got around that these wise men were asking about the birth of the King of the Jews, we read that Herod and the inhabitants of Jerusalem became troubled. This was a time fraught with religious unrest. Jewish revolts had occurred before, which resulted in death. And by this time, Herod was nearing the end of his life. And so his illness had only increased his own paranoia of political opposition. He was so unstable that he killed his favorite wife, and at least two of his sons. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem became troubled by the visitors' questions because they knew it would send Herod into panic and further rage, which we'll see next week it certainly did. Herod gathered the chief priests and scribes in order to find out where the Messiah was prophesied to be born. He figured he could utilize 
the wise men in order to squelch this potential uprising before it began. And so he gains some information that then he can use to offer the wise men in exchange for learning the timing of this star. So the Jewish religious leaders inform Herod that Christ would be born in Bethlehem based upon the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's a very straightforward prophecy that a ruler would come from Bethlehem. And so with knowledge of the location to offer, Herod secretly summons the wise men in order to learn when they saw the star, when the star had arisen. And uh, apparently they inform him because... Obviously, he's able to calculate the timing in verse 16 based upon what he learned from them. And so Herod sends the wise men to to Bethlehem with the instruction to report back to him with their location so that he might join in worshiping the Christ. And as we read ahead, we know that this is all just a a ploy. He's, he's, He's scheming. But it's interesting that these religious scholars appear to have no desire to see this child. Certainly they had heard about the visitors' questions, because all of Jerusalem had, had been stirred up by this. And here they confirm the most likely location for this child, but they make no apparent effort to lead these wise men to the location, or to even follow along after them. Employees at at Walmart do a better job of leading the lost than these religious scholars. This is the the constant, or this is the, the contrast that Matthew wants us to see, that Gentile wise men were willing to make great sacrifices to travel a long distance in order to worship a king that they knew very little about. But those with the greatest knowledge of the Old Testament, those with every amount of resources at their disposal, were unwilling to travel beyond their backyard in order to learn if this child was indeed the Messiah. And that's the context in which Jesus first appeared. He came to a a people who had shepherds that didn't lead them. There were no faithful leadership, no faithful religious leaders present. And Satan is always scheming to hinder worship, and it's often through his attack upon the leadership of the church that he achieves his greatest victories. The church is under constant spiritual attack, compromise and apathy regularly regularly infect her leaders. And so we must be vigilant in upholding them in prayer. We must also take the time to evaluate our own hearts. Right? It's impossible to know what exactly caused these chief priests and scribes to become so indifferent about the Messiah's coming. But whatever the cause, the result was condemnation. Maybe they were focused on building their own reputation at this time, gaining their own followers. So I wonder, are we distracted from worship because we're too busy with our own ambitions for gain? Maybe they thought that they had figured everything out already. They had calculated everything out precisely, and they knew 
when the Messiah would appear, and this was far too soon. Does our own knowledge serve to puff us up rather than lead us to worship Christ in humility? Maybe they had a lot of really good things that kept them from the best thing. Maybe, like Martha, they were distracted with much serving during this time. They simply could not get away in order to follow these men or lead them. It's a time to ask yourself as well, is your calendar filled with so many things that it's beginning to crowd out the best things, namely worship? And the apathetic context of Jerusalem did not prevent these wise men from finding and offering worship to Jesus, and that's what we conclude with. Offering worship to Jesus. The wise men listened to Herod, and then as they departed, they began to follow the star until it rested over the house where the family was staying. And then upon seeing the star again, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and they were invited into the home where they saw Mary and Jesus. And we read, they fell down and worshipped him. They bowed down before him. And they gave their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then we read that they learned not to return by a dream to Herod. And so they, they go back, they return by a different route. Uh, the Christian Standard Study Bible says gold, frankincense, and myrrh were costly gifts. The latter two are aromatic resins. Frankincense was used in making incense and perfume. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 30. And myrrh was used as an ingredient in anointing oil and as perfume, as well as in burial preparations. You can read that in John chapter 19, verse 39. And so much ink has been spilled over the meaning of these gifts. Did they have some sim symbolic significance? Well, if they did, it's, it's difficult to imagine the wise men understood all the implications that many commentators draw out from these gifts. It, it seems that God was fulfilling his promises regardless of the knowledge of the participants. And this child king was, was worthy to receive the wealth of the nations as, as Psalm 72 predicted he would receive as well as Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. So the, the wise men brought gifts that were fit for a king because God ordained for such to happen. It would be this incredible contrast that from a, a poor family would come such extravagant gifts. And so it's possible that the, the family, as I mentioned, used these gifts to abruptly escape to Egypt. We'll talk about that more next week. But whatever the result, Matthew emphasizes two aspects of the wise men in their worship of Jesus. First, he focuses on their posture. They fell down before the child. And Sinclair Ferguson talks about the statue that Bertel Thorvaldson created. He sought to depict in marble, this idea of the humility that is required to come before Christ. 
And so in this marble statue of, of the Christ figure, it, it's in the Lutheran Cathedral in Copenhagen, Denmark. The figure's arms are extended in a gesture of welcome to all. In fact, there's a plaque underneath the statue that says, come to me. But the statue has an unusual feature. In order to look directly into its face, it's necessary to kneel. His head is pointed down. So if you're looking from straight on, you, you cannot see. It's not possible to get a clear view of it from any other position. And so Ferguson says the point is surely well taken. As Charles Lamb, the 18th century English essayist, once noted, if William Shakespeare were to come into a room, men would stand up out of respect for his accomplishments. But if Jesus Christ were to come into the room, the only appropriate response would be to kneel. We must kneel before Christ if we desire to truly see him. Right, true worship begins with a posture of humility, with a rec recognition of our own inadequacies, our own helplessness, and our desperate need for a Savior. Secondly, Matthew focuses upon the gifts of the wise men. They came with appropriate gifts that revealed their desire to honor him as king. And so our worship should be accompanied by its own sacrificial gifts of our time, our talents, and our treasures. We should hold nothing back from him. We do not worship in order to earn God's favor. But because we have been shown grace, we are willing to offer Christ everything that we have. Because he's worthy to receive it. And so let us worship him in that way even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that this season of Christmas is not about ourselves. It's not about what we get, the, the gifts that we give or the gifts that we receive from one another, but it's ultimately about the gift that we have in Christ. It would help us not to downplay that theme as we celebrate Christmas in our homes, as we gather together with families, with friends, with loved ones. Lord, as, as we reflect upon these things, may, may Christ be at the center of it all. May we read the birth narratives together in Matthew and Luke. May we encourage one another. May we bear one another's burdens. May we hold one another up. For many, this is a, a challenging time. Lord, we need one another. And because of what Christ has done, we, you have brought us together. You have knit us together as a family. And so, Lord, as we worship you, we also want to serve our neighbor. We want to love one another with a sacrificial love. And so, Lord, we ask that you would enable us to do that. For your glory, in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to...